Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning. Welcome to Talk Back Gardening on this March long weekend. Good morning, John. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners, and a special good morning to those who are gardeners and visiting Adelaide because of the Fringe or the Festival or WOMAD or whatever that is the mm. reason. You're most, most welcome. There are so many reasons to be in Adelaide at the moment. There is no doubt about that. Um, and one of the things that people are doing this weekend, thanks to the subsiding of the River Murray, is heading back into the Riverland. But we would love to hear from you if you are a gardener along the River Murray and you have had inundation, particularly of your citrus or your fruit trees because we've got really one of the most not just nationally renowned but internationally renowned experts on the topic joining us very shortly Ian Tolley so if you've got a a story to tell us about your experience with the floods and you'd like some help saving and rejuvenating your fruit trees Ian is the man to help so the number is 1300 222891. Give us a call now if you can. 1300 222891. And if you've got a citrus or fruit tree question, Ian can certainly help you with that as well. Yes, and later on in the program, we'll take a look at fruit fly. Fruit fly in the Riverland, fruit fly in the Adelaide area. We're free of it here in Adelaide. We're not free of it in the Riverland and we'll talk to Rob Baker, one of the controllers of the Fruit Fly program for Persa. Give us an update and also just give us a heads up of why we need to be very vigilant. We don't want Fruit Fly back here in Adelaide. We certainly want to get rid of it in the Riverland. We certainly do. And we love your <coughs> comments, but um, we don't like your questions if we can help it by text because John likes to delve into them with you and I know Ian will as well. But your text line uh, number is 0467922891. And I do have a couple of ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away later in the program as well. So stay tuned for that. It would be nice to hear from gardeners along the River Murray that are being affected because of the flood. We're going to focus this morning on uh, fruit trees and it's a program with a difference. We're taking a look at what has happened as a result of the water coming in and flooding the gardens. It's a fascinating story of both what's happening to the soil and the plants. And the person who's going to talk us through that is Ian Tolley. Ian Tolley is an internationally renowned horticulturalist, a Riverland citrus grower and authority in the Riverland and Australia. And uh, just by the way, Ian was a, a ma- had a major role to play back in 1956 when the big flood came down the river even bigger than the ones now and protecting Renmark was the big issue and the fact that there's a big bank around Renmark is is a lot to do with people like Ian Tolley but anyway he's still here with us and good morning to you Ian Tolley. Good morning John. You're very kind. <laughs> uh, well, you are a wonderful friend and colleague and uh, I've been working with you for many, many years and I appreciate the time that you give to gardeners. Let's focus very much on the flood. There is the flood that came down, it's now receding and it would be very useful if you could just describe the fact that there's this great big volume of water where it comes from and why that's important and then it it, it plonks itself onto the 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 gardens what happens there well uh, you said where it's coming from it's coming from pretty much 
all of Eastern Australia, this side of the of what I call the Blue Mountains, which is a very young range of mountains that came up uh, thousands and millions of years later than the Flinders Ranges, and that bit in between has a network of river systems, all of which eventually lead into the River Murray. So we collected this this flood. Uh, water from all of those areas and um, it needs to be understood that the difference this time between 56 and um, and what happened this time is the speed of the water from the many many heavy rain events in widespread uh, areas caused a huge amount of scouring of all those floodplain areas and observers would have noticed two changes to the colour of the water. The first involved leaching of tannins from 66 years of accumulated composted leaves since the 56 flood that covered the same extended floodplain basins. Well, uh, that all developed in the 56 flood and uh, covered the same extended floodplain basin. That surface water changed to black for a few weeks as a result of that. This is followed by a sustained brown coloration indicating the enormous volumes of silt being carried down the river to the sea. That nutrient-rich silt is a lifesaver to river basin soils and the seabed for vegetation renewal and massive development of sea fish and crustacean numbers. Could I stop you there, Ian, because, okay, there's the silt and uh, its history of where it comes from, and people are saying, look, my garden's covered with silt. How do I get rid of it? (laughs) But it's valuable, (laughs) and it has a big value sort of beyond uh, uh, the gardens. But uh, let's now take a look. There's the silt in the gardens, and it's probably covered the trees and the soil. First of all, the effect of silt on the tree. Well, any inundated tree or shrub foliage that shows those silt deposits, if they're in your garden, they should be hosed down with water under pressure. And you may need to do this several times as the water becomes cleaner. Um, it's just to just keep at it until the colour changes. Plant capacity to photosynthesise... Good Lord. That, that's all right. That happens to the best of them, Neon. <laughs> it is severely compromised as leaves covered with silt block stomates on the leaf surfaces involved as well with the plant's capacity to produce sugars. So you need to wash and clean the foliage of the trees to get them back into full operation. Okay, so there's the tree's canopy. We now come to the soil. Last time you chatted away on Talk Back Gardening, you were talking about the life in the soil. So there's the water, it comes in and it stays for quite some time. What's the effect of life in the soil as a result of the flood and as the flood recedes? Well, um, many of the soil biota have trouble breathing and we do get losses, um, but we have to keep talking about billions of organisations that have life under the soil. They are as responsible for producing us fruit as the leaves that we see commonly. It's this relationship that we have between photosynthesis producing sugar 
uh, providing that sugar to the biota under the, under the soil without capacity to have sunlight to produce their own. And they, in turn, chew up all the nutrients into a solution that they can return to the tree. And that's how the tree works. And it's the same with shrubs. All of that it depends upon what is happening underground that we never get to see. So could you talk now about oxygen in the soil, just how much of that oxygen is, is used by the little microbes to stay alive and uh, what happens as the water uh, plonks itself and soaks itself into that topsoil? Well, fortunately, there are billions of organisation, organ, organisms sorry, in, in the soil and whilst quite a few of them uh, die because of the lack of oxygen, um, there are enough usually left to um, rebuild their numbers uh, and it's a slow process uh, because in, if we talk about flood plains, we're talking about clay soils and as clay soils start to dry out, they crack badly and uh, move about so that it makes it very difficult for root development with those cracks. And, you know, that, that needs attention. It's a critical issue. So we've got uh, the silt there. Now, could you talk a little bit about the silt, the content of the silt? We've got clay soils, and, and, and uh, it's important to get the, the air back into the soils, but the silt themselves, the silt itself, it, it, does that have air in it? And is it of value from a clay point of view? Could we uh, examine that in a bit more detail? Well, yes, it has some value, but really the, the important thing, if, you, if you've noticed, even before the flood, uh, some difficulties in heavy clay soils of tree growth and plant growth that you really are not satisfied with, then this is the time to start using gypsum. Gypsum's well known in heavy clay soil fields. Uh, it's not used at all in sandy soils and is not necessary, but gypsum or calcium sulphate crumbles hard, lumpy clay soils. Now, the moment that does that trick, in the process of that, you're getting uh, a, an air infusion because the tree starts to recover. Uh, it starts to photosynthesize. It draws more water into its structure, and that draws air into the clay. If the clay is well crumbled, that process is very rapid. If it's left to crack, those cracks make it very difficult for roots to develop. So how much gypsum and how often? Oh, uh, forever. <laughs> often. The gypsum, at least a kilogram for every 10 square feet. Um, it's, it's not a fertiliser. It doesn't change your pH. It does improve the quality of the clay soils enormously. So we've known this and use it extensively in the Riverland clay soil areas. It's been uh, in operation for more than 100 years. It's, it's very successful. Don't have any problems with that. Just, just do it and do it every year, every year, because you will continue to get improvement to your soil. Those of you who are not used to talk back gardening probably uh, don't recognise the voice. Regular gardeners would know the voice of Ian Tully, horticulturalist extreme and uh, a very valued uh, contributor to talk back gardening. 
Deb, I'm conscious that there are also questions for uh, about citrus. There are. Maybe could we talk a little bit about some? Uh, if and I'm sure Ian is quite happy just to sort of talk citrus problems. And I'd like to then come back to uh, the story that we're uh, going through, Ian, and maybe look at uh, uh, apart from gypsum, uh, the value of uh, uh, fertilisers, and, and or maybe not the value of fertilisers, but uh, the stimulants and things like that. But uh, Deb, perhaps a, a question or two. Yes, on. let's take a couple of questions. Uh, we've got uh, Ian Tolly here for you if you would like to mine his wonderful knowledge particularly of citrus but of fruit trees generally. He's a a leading horticulturalist uh, in South Australia, Australia and internationally as well. The number is 1300 891. Haven't heard from anybody that's had particular flood experience so if you have we'd love your questions so please give us a call in. But Robert from Walkerville has been waiting very patiently and you would like to move a dwarf lemon tree, Robert. Yes, yes. thank you very much for taking the call. Um, I'm, I'm conscious it's not a, a question about floods, unfortunately. Um, look, we have a, a, a very healthy four-year-old dwarf lemon tree and I'd like to move it. I'm wondering if I can and then if I can, what time of the year is best? The answer is now, uh, because we actually are in summer, although some would say that's not true, we're into autumn, but the next day it changes again. But still, we're going to get a lot of warm weather, and it's a really good time um, to prune the top of the tree back by about 50%, uh, make a nice shape to it, get rid of odd stuff sticking out here, there and everywhere, skirt it so that it's lifting the the bottom part away and then use your shovel or a spade would be better as deeply as you can around the inside of the skirt until you can get down to the depth of the shovel. Now you should be able to lever that tree out carefully, shake it out, wash it out, put it into a container, you didn't say which way but if you're just moving it to another part of the garden, make sure that the hole that you dig is well and truly um, loaded with organic fertilisers uh, and particularly some of the the things that we now use like putting soil biota uh, excesses and that will start to give a stimulus for the tree once you get it uh, into the new position. Okay, good, true. Thanks very much. That that suits me fine. Thanks, Robert, for hanging on so patiently. Love the call. One three hundred triple two eight nine one. Louise is in Port Wollonga. Louise, you've got um, uh, some questions about potted citrus as well. Yes, I do. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Ian. Um, good morning, Louise. I, <laughs> good morning. I built ten of your macro pots after seeing you on ABC Gardening with Sophie. Um, and yep. that was three years ago, and I have lots of different citrus in there, but they're actually yep. starting to get quite large. They're probably I'm five foot. They're, some of them are probably seven foot uh, in the pots, but they're raised. Um, but I'm wondering how big should I keep those canopies? Should it be around the same size as the the macro pot itself, which is probably eighty centimeters across? If, we, if I was doing a master class, uh, Louise, uh, I would normally throw a mandarin to a person that answers, asks a good question. I would throw you two mandarins for this. <laughs> Thank uh, you. This is a product of your own success. And yes, 
you definitely need to reshape those trees um, to get them into thinking about the amount of irrigation, the amount of fertilising you're doing. If you're really good with this, by the sound of it, you are because you're getting a big top, then cutting it back till you've got it, uh, not necessarily as small as the pot itself, but make it uh, down where you can reach the top of the tree quite comfortably. Shape it now because we're getting a flush at this stage, so it's a good yes, time to do it. And uh, you'll have to change your pattern for each of the varieties because, as you know, there are very great differences between each of your macro pots. And congratulations on your success to date. Thank you very much for the advice, Anne. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, Louise, for the call. Sounds like you're a very good gardener indeed. Our special guest is leading South Australian horticulturalist Ian Tolley. His special topic today is looking at what you do after the floodwaters subside, but he is happy to take any of your citrus calls. The number 1300 This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Ian Tolley is our guest, horticulturalist in the Riverland. We're taking a look at the effect on fruit trees and fruit gardens after the river floods recede. And we'll come back to that story very shortly. And I'm just conscious that there are a lot of question, citrus questions coming in, and in particularly the time. There's a big argument as to is it now too late to plant citrus and not just citrus, the, the subtropicals, avocados and things like that. Uh, obviously, we can plant right now, but for how long and when, when's the cutoff point? To think about your microclimate, the, the, the way the weather is changing, we've probably got three to four months of mild, relatively warm um, temperatures. And from that point of view, uh, planting out citrus, planting out uh, the um, tropical varieties like avocados and so forth works very well at this stage in, in this uh, uh, new month. Uh, if you consider the whole of March... Um, as a planting time, then you've got warm, warmer soils. Your biota have a chance to make that connection to the trees. Um, you get that all established, and they'll be in good shape to go into our winter, which is becoming milder and milder. So uh, that question would have been a, a really interesting one 20 years ago when you say, well, when the frosts come... But these, these, these times are changing, so I'm not at all worried if you, if you use all of this month for planting out uh, because you've got plenty of time for the roots to redevelop and be ready to start for next spring. By the end of March and as we move into May, soil temperatures will be around about 16 degrees here in Adelaide. Is that the cut-off point? Oh, no. Uh, they, you can go back to about, around about 10, 12 degrees and you'll still get growth. So we've got, we've got quite a, a way to go on that. OK, that's good news. Uh, Ian Tolley is here to take your calls. Now, Pauline in Norwood got a little bit organised this weekend um, and made contact with some photographs. Now, I don't know if you managed to have a look at them on your uh, email, Ian, or not. Pauline, welcome. Tell us what you've found. Oh, hello, Ian, and thank you for taking hello, my call. Pauline, and I have, I have looked at your fruit. 
Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> well, it's tennis ball size and loose skin to peel. And I was sold it as an Australian lime, but it certainly doesn't taste like a lime. And I'm just wondering if it's possible for you to give me an idea of what it really might be. I presume you've got your pencil there ready. Yes, I certainly um, do. Mm. It, it's, it's called Rough Lemon. Rough Lemon, right. Yes, and it was used as a rootstock for about 50 to 100 years at the very beginning, but when science caught up with us and we discovered that as a rootstock it's very sensitive to Phytophthora uh, and the trees that budded to them died because of that, uh, we, we got rid of it as a rootstock. However, it's a very good juice tree and uh, I'm sure you've already squeezed squeezed the juice out of that for summer drinks and found how nice it is. Uh, and if you um, make sure that you keep it as a juice fruit, and by the way, only two seeds. Uh, I'm surprised and delighted for you because there's a wide variation in the cultivar and uh, a near seedless fruit like that makes it easy for you to squeeze it, put them into the freezer, keep them for next summer. Right, so you put the whole fruit into the freezer or... No, no, squeeze out squeeze the, juice. the juice. and freeze that. Yes, use, use those, um, those things in the fridge where you've got the little squares. Fill them up and any time you want a nice uh, drink, um, then you can take out a cube or two and uh, you just keep using them. It's, right, it's okay. a very nice... A product, if you want it a little sweeter, you, of course you can put a little bit of sugar in it. But yes. it's a very good fruit. I, I wouldn't lose it. No, well, it's in a, it's in a wine barrel and um, it produces quite prolifically. Mm. And I use the segments in fruit salads, actually, in uh, green salads. But um, mm. that's a good idea about the juicing. I hadn't thought about that. Have way. yourself some rough, lim- rough lemonade rough. there, Pauline. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much for all of that. Thanks Thank for the you. call. Appreciate it. Marlene is in Nova, sorry, Dover Gardens. Let's get it right. Now, you've got a, a lime tree, Marlene. Yes, I have. Um, it's been a fabulous lime tree for many years. But this year, um, still got plenty on them as per normal. But this year, they're very hard. Um, this is. Do you know whether this is a Tahitian lime or not? It's no, not Tahitian. It's normal lime, whatever normal lime is. Oh uh, yes, it's I'm Tahitian. Sorry, I can't. It's not kaffir. Um, describe the fruit then. If it's not a Tahitian lime, which is green, and you pick it before it falls on the ground, um, that's very common. It's not a very uh, good lime for year-round use, and I've got five five other cultivars of limes that go year-round. So um, I'm at sea. You need to describe it to me. Um, well, I have limes year-round, um, and so this is the new crop. Um, and as I said, um, I've never had them hard like this before. By now, they would be a little bit soft, and so you pick them. And then if I leave them long enough, they go yellow and they're nice like that as well. Yes, and and you're you're seeing the changes in our climate uh, changes that are causing the maturity of that fruit not to be the normal times that you've been expecting over these years. Uh, They're going to mature at a much later time, maybe even a month 
or more. Uh, I would I would say that the short answer is relax. They will keep on growing because of the warmth. Size will go up a bit. Uh, they will eventually uh, get a little softer because the limes that I've got are like rocks at the moment here, and I'm not expecting to use them for at least a month or two. Okay, sounds like the same problem I have. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks, Marlene. Looks like it's um, not just you. Ian Tolley uh, is our special guest today. And we're taking a look at the effect of the floods along the River Murray as they recede and their effect on fruit trees in particular. And Ian Tolley has explained uh, just what happens in terms of where the sud- the, the water comes uh, laden with silt, and uh, there's a lot of goodness in the salt, but uh, in the silt, but it can all cause problems. And I think he's emphasised the importance of getting gypsum into the soil because uh, of the clay soils and the silt coming together, and cl- then uh, you can overcome the problem, help overcome the problem with gypsum. Ian, uh, the mention that the, the disease Phytophthora was raised by one of the callers a moment ago. What's the likelihood of Phytophthora? It, it to me. Uh, uh, phytophthora is is a major problem in poorly soiled orchards, having come from one of those many years ago. What's the likelihood of phytophthora turning up as a as a problem of uh, gardens, the fruit gardens along the river? Um, very very low, uh, because um, since we've abandoned the use of rough lemon, which was sensitive. We're using uh, rootstocks like uh, Carrizo citrange, Trifoliata. Uh, these rootstocks have been selected over the last few decades for being totally uh, resistant to a whole range of Phytophthoras. We have Citrophthora down here in the southern part of Australia and Parasitica in the northern part, which both of which were very devastating in the early days. But with that rootstocks that we have now, uh, I'm, I'm not worried about that phytophthora at all. And remember, there are, I think, something of the order of a thousand different combinations in that. So uh, it affects many other plants, but most of the plants over generations, the ones that are very sensitive will die off and those that are a little bit resistant come on and eventually after a few generations of plant, 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 you're getting increasing plant, increasingly plants that are more resistant. So it's beginning to diminish as a real problem. Let's now focus on tree recovery. The fruit trees have had the water on them. They're probably The water's been there for two or three weeks. Uh, how much inundation can a fruit tree uh, stand and uh, how, what's its likelihood of, of recovery? Well, uh, the first thing is uh, what I've always been saying, John, I may as well use it again. Look, look, look. <laughs> if you look at the tree and see the health of the tree post-flooding and it's looking in reasonable condition, then relax. If the tree has taken a pasting, so to speak, and the, the leaves look a bit yellow, it's an indication that a lot of the roots were rotted as a result of the lack of air. Uh, and if you um, decide uh, that the variety is still the one you want, leave it alone. Don't go and prune it. Pruning only makes extra cuts, puts more pressure on the physiological um, 
way that plants grow. So leave it there. Even the leaves that might be dead um, act as a sunburn collect, uh, protection because if you get 40 degrees, uh, trees that are in a sensitive situation like that can sunburn and often be misdiagnosed mis as a disease. It's purely sunburn. And um, I'm seeing that in plants that are not necessarily uh, good in flooding, uh, but mostly they will recover. Uh, but it's going to take quite some time until new roots develop. OK, good news. We've got three months, four months of nice warm weather coming. So we're in a good position for roots to start recovering because they will be getting air now instead of no air with floods. Um, and you'll see lots of new little little shoots coming through on sticks that you thought might have been dead but aren't. Uh, and that's why I'm saying don't prune, don't do anything to it. Um, do put some light organic fertilisers on the trees, scratch it in, but don't heavily water it in. Just have it there ready, uh, waiting for the situation when it may be needed or if we get rain that um, may leach it in a little bit. But be very careful about overwatering or watering at all until these trees recover. So an application, a light application of an organic fertiliser, that leads us into the stimulants. We can now use a lot of soil and plant stimulants, starting off with the seaweeds, and now there's the fish and the composts and uh, variations on a theme. Are they of any value in the tree recovery? Um, this was a wonderful start to a whole train of things that continues to this day. Um, uh, there, the, much of it was done without understanding the physiology of what was happening. We now know that what's really happening is that these stimulants have been encouraging the increase of biota. That's the term commonly used for all the live organisms that are in the soil. They might be little insects, actually little critters, but they can also be good viruses, um, uh, top, um, uh, uh, any of the organic... Uh, yeah, oh, there's lots I'm of just, them. There's so many of them. I'm, I'm just scratching my head as to which ones to mention. Oh, but, OK. Well, you can't mention brand names. <laughs> so, so, but, but the important thing is there are a large number of those kind of soil stimulants and plant stimulants, and uh, you're suggesting that they are worth using. Uh, absolutely fantastic. I've been uh, working with people that are developing these over the last decade, and the responses, particularly plants in difficult soils, difficult areas, uh, make the difference in getting them to jump away. And if you use, it at use them at planting time, um, and then they develop in that new environment, uh, it gives you much better establishment than we previously had the, had the chance to do. For fruit growers along the River Murray, I'm sure the information that provided by Ian is, is very mm. uh, valuable. And just a heads up, Ian is coming to town in, uh, uh, in May and uh, we've already had a little chat and uh, we should be able to organise another citrus 
masterclassed with Excellent. Ian Tolly sometime in May. Excellent. Now, Ian, I know you're supposed to have left us about five minutes ago. We've got some citrus callers on the line. Are you happy to stay with us just to answer some quick questions? Of course. Oh, thank you. Michael from Broken Hill, uh, you've got discoloured fruit on your orange and mandarin trees. Yes, it's uh, half and half. The top part's orange and underneath still completely green on both well, of them. Well, uh, Michael, join the club. Um, this has been the worst physiological year in a long, long time. I've never seen so many fruits of all kinds in a discoloured sense and then physiologically which is what you're talking about uh, green at the bottom and, and orange at the top um, uh, and the plant is in a mess not knowing what sort of climate it's working in because uh, I don't know whether to wear two sets of clothes and wake up in the morning today and say, oh, it's going to be cold, I'll keep a jumper on, and tomorrow it'll be 42, so I'll get my bathers on. And that's what the tree is doing at the same time. It never knows what sort of weather it's happening. And that lack of uniformity is causing all sorts of distortions, and you're in the middle of that. My, my comment would be relax. Uh, nothing we can do about it. Uh, use what you can out of that. But uh, hopefully next year, next season, we'll get a little bit more uniformity, uh, less, less of problems and see how we go from there. Thanks very much for your call. Excellent, Michael. Uh, Simeon has called from Prospect. And Simeon, we might have to make you the last caller for uh, Ian Tolly this morning. But it's about ants and lemon trees. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, just a quick one. I, I, I've got uh, ants, small ants, little black ones, climbing up and down uh, or crawling up and down this, uh, the trunk of my lemon tree. Is that a good thing yes, or a bad thing? Yes, I can thing? solve it for you. You don't have to worry about it. You can make sure that you've got clean soil around the base of the tree. Um, yeah. Then you get some borax, which is a common material. Everybody knows about borax. You can get it at any of the stores, you know, Mitre 10, the, the big sheds and all that sort of thing. It's not, okay. not expensive. You mix yep. sugar in it. If the ants are very small, I'm suggesting that you grind the sugar particles to be smaller. Think about their size. And when you mix that sugar into some borax, and then cover the area around the base of the tree, they think they've just struck heaven because they don't have to climb up into the tree to get um, food from the tree. You've just given them sugar. Unfortunately, it's coated with borax, and when they take it back to the nest, end of ants. And so from that point of view, uh, just do regular applications of that because, and don't put too much sugar in it so that it gets into be a hard mass. No, certainly just dusted, not watered in. So that way you'll certainly get rid of the ants because they take it back and destroy themselves. Thank you, Simeon. And just uh, in a cup on the text line for you, Ian, Anne says, we brought fruit trees down from the Riverland with us in 1990 when we moved to Flagstaff Hill. They've been amazing and given us an abundance of fruit for 30 years. So that's a happy story. And picking up on the rough lemon question, Ian, and your uh, recommendation that it be juiced and 
put in the freezer. Gail from Geelong, hello, listening all listeners in Victoria, says if you juice a lemon and put it in the freezer, label the ice blocks as lemon. My husband, yes, we are still married, threw them out as he said they didn't taste right. So... <laughs> Uh, Ian Tolly, you're always such a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We'll see you back here in May for a masterclass, but thanks so much for joining us this morning. We, we are so fortunate. We all deal with a group of people who are the real people in this world and have a plant world to prove it. And Thank you for having Yes, and so many people get so much enjoyment out of their fruit gardens uh, and uh, with people like Ian Tolley providing advice, uh, it has to have to be a winner. It certainly is. Thank you, Ian Tolley. Uh, wonderful to have him along. We'll get back to more of your uh, talkback gardening questions in just a moment, but we are going to check in on the latest on Fruit Fly up next, staying in the Riverland area. Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Fruit fly can be a major issue, not just for commercial growers, for home gardeners as well. South Australia, in Adelaide, uh, there was a major problem with fruit fly, but fortunately with the cooperation of home gardeners and also with the value of uh, Persa, there's no fruit fly left in Adelaide. But there's major problems in the Riverland, and Rob Baker is with Persa, one of the coordinators for the Persa Fruit Fly Eradication Program. Let's take a look. First of all, if we may, Rob, and say good morning to you, are you winning the war in the Riverland? Yes, good morning, and thank you for having us on. Look, uh, we've got 30... With, there's 30 current fruit fly outbreaks in the Riverland at the moment. Uh, the latest being declared in Winky um, after maggots were found in plums on a non-commercial orchard. Look, it is disappointing that more fruit fly outbreaks have been declared uh, across the Riverland. But we've got a response plan in place um, that's included a number of new surveillance tools um, with an increased trapping network. We're undertaking more targeted checks for larvae. Uh, these actions with strong support from industry and the community of self-report, it means that we've detected more fruit fly than ever before throughout the Riverland, which means we're going to, to have more outbreaks. Um, but this is part of a planned approach um, to unearth as many outbreaks as we can and get on top. Uh, Adelaide campaign, uh, you really basically flooded uh, Adelaide with fruit fly people and with advice and, and, uh, and cleaning up the problem. Do you have enough resources in the Riverland to bring about um, an end to the particular problem? Yeah, look, we've got over 170 staff uh, working across the Riverland at the moment, which is supported by um, our incident management team that we have in place. Um, we've got a couple of work sites out of Barnum and Loxton where those staff respond from. Um, and you know, with, with the strong support from industry as well, supporting us as, as part of our plan you know, moving, on, moving forward. Um, it puts us in a great position to be able to, to eradicate fruit fly that we're finding. We know that when we locate and fruit uh, locate uh, fruit fly, the, the methods that we use for for the eradication is working, um, uh, particularly because we're seeing those hot spots uh, being resolved once we start treatment. Over the next three days, there's going to be a lot of movement. People moving from Adelaide into the Riverland and coming back from the Riverland to Adelaide. Just a word of advice in terms of the movement of fruit out of the Riverland. 
Yeah, so look, um, you know, you, can, you can't take fruit into the Riverland when you're travelling into the Riverland pay-to-pay, um, but it's really important. Um, you, know, you can still purchase fruit within the Riverland from uh, the, the stores within the Riverland region, um, but it's important you just can't move that, that fruit out, out of the region. So we'd encourage you to, to shop locally when you're there. And also jump onto our website, the Persa website. Look, it's important um, to, to know where you can move fruit in and around the Riverland and we'd encourage people to jump on the website um, and have a look before they start moving fruit in and around that area. Let's also take a look at here in Adelaide. Uh, we're coming to the end of a, a fruit harvest, uh, the summer fruit harvest. Probably there are figs, persimmons to come and olives. Are they all susceptible to fruit fly? Yes, all uh, fruit fly host material. And again, if you jump on the website, you can have a look and it gives you a, a long list of, of host material that there is. But, you know, coming into that season, we'd encourage people to, to pick and check their fruit. Um, fruit fly is most likely to sting ripe fruit when it's on the tree and not on the ground. So it's really important that you pick that fruit, um, collect it, uh, dispose of any fallen fruit that's on the on the ground and, and check the fruit. So look for blemishes on the fruit and cut the fruit open and see if there's maggots in there. And if you do locate something, it's really important to call us um, on the Fruit Fire hotline, seal it in a plastic bag, give us a ring on 1300 Rob Baker, coordinator for PERSA with the major fruit fly eradication program. Rob, thanks for your time. Thank you, Rob Baker. And as he just said, for more information, you can go online to fruitfly.sa.gov.au or you can call the Fruit Fly hotline on 1300 And from McGill has been uh, waiting on the line to have a chat about when to trim an apricot and mandarin and orange tree. Hi, Anne. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Um, yes, the trees uh, are in, you know, in a um, suburb, and I just want to keep them at a, a height that I can actually reach. They don't seem to... Uh, they had a reasonably hard prune back last year, and the trees are under five years old, but they're towering... The centre parts of the whole structures of all of them uh, is towering well above the fence, like right out of reach. So I'm just wondering... Um, is it too late to turn in particular apricot I'm a bit concerned about because you talk about gummosis, etc. Um, and uh, how much could I prune? All right, so let's take a look at the apricot tree to start with. If you're going to cut it back, do it now, almost immediately. Uh, the big problem is when you prune in June or in winter, you've got uh, wet conditions and that is likely to stimulate the uh, gamosis uh, fungus from uh, spreading through the air. So if you prune now, and I think you could cut back, the important thing is if you cut back now and summer prune, you'll actually uh, uh, reduce the vigour. If you wait till winter and prune it back hard then, then you'll just get it coming back into strong vigour again. So prune the apricot tree according to what your, your needs are. The other trees, what were they, uh, Anne? Apricot, mandarin and orange. Oh, okay, a mandy and an orange. Okay, well, with, with the citrus, um, I wouldn't be cutting that back those hard. Uh, trim them, trim them, uh, but don't take them back too hard. If you cut them back, citrus back, uh, as Ian mentioned, there's still a few weeks of uh, warm weather to come and that will stimulate the citrus into strong growth. And citrus are very prone to cold weather, particularly frost. 
So trim your citrus now, and if you wanted to sort of reshape those, I'd be doing those probably in springtime. You might have to sacrifice some of next year's uh, crop, but uh, either uh, trim now and, and prune probably in springtime. Thank you. Thanks, Anne, for the call. Now, while we're on citrus, Margaret, um, yours has been cut quite a bit, your grapefruit tree. Yes, um, my grapefruit tree, I put it in in uh, 1983 and had wonderful time with the, with the grapefruits on it and then I was taking a medication and I couldn't eat grapefruit anymore. I kept it for friends but then eventually they couldn't eat it either. So um, I had it, finally had it cut down um, and I'd only ever had one tree in my yard cut down before and we'd done it sort of below soil level and then sort of chopped it up a bit and covered it over and it's disappeared, the stump. So I thought the same thing, but it was such a hard stump. Uh, they couldn't manage to do that. So it's cut right down a little bit below the level of the, of the soil, yes. but then it sprouted right back up again. <laughs> and I, obviously it would be rootstock. I don't know what to do with it really. Yes. Now's the time to actually treat it with triclopore. Triclopore is sold as blackberry killer and variations on a brush uh, control. It's systemic and it's very, very effective. What you need to do is, uh, when you're ready, have your uh, material all ready to uh, brush onto uh, uh, the area that I'm going to talk about. Uh, what you've got to do is be able to get enough of the chemical into uh, the stump so that it takes uh, uh, through the sap system the chemical through the root system and kills the roots. And if you kill the roots, that's the end of the problem. If you don't kill the roots, you'll keep on getting suckers. So um, how long are those little stems, uh, the suckers, coming from it? Um, oh, goodness me. Um, they've really only come up this season. So, uh, like, um, I hadn't... Are they 10 or 20 or 30 cents? I've a knee operation, so I haven't been doing that yeah, much No, no it's the length of the, how much uh, canopy you've got there. Do you have, say, 10 or 20 centimetres of, of growth? Oh, no, more than that. It's about at my, at my waist height now. Oh, OK, that's not a problem. Right. Um, so I would be uh, round about knee high. I would chop the main stem, and then I'd be painting the cut uh, with the triclopore. And you mix up the triclopore with kerosene, so follow the directions uh, carefully. But then having dobbed uh, the cut area, I'd be getting probably a bread knife or something that's got a rough edge on it and pretty strong and rub it up and down uh, the bark. So come down lower where there's no branches and just scrape up and down, up and down, up and down. And what you're doing is not uh, ring barking it. You're just making injury and then paint almost immediately with your triclopore and then go away and 15 minutes later when all that material has been absorbed by uh, the suckers, paint it again and do that two or three times and if you do that two or three times over a day, it's surprising how much chemical will be absorbed into the root system and that should be the end of the problem. Thank you for the call Margaret. If you have not won anything from ABC Radio Adelaide in the last month and you would like to win an ABC Gardening Australia magazine call now. I've got two to give away on 1300 triple this is Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. I think we've got time for one more call from Amanda in Blackwood and you've got a Pittosporum tree, Amanda, or Pitosterum. Yeah. I never know how to pronounce I it. Know. 
I never know how to pronounce it either. It's a magnificent tree, um, but it's um, got bare dirt underneath. My dog likes sitting on the dirt. And I wanted to put sawdust on the area until I could figure out what to plant. Would that kill the tree? It's a eucalyptus trunk that, that, that the, you know, a stump that got recently uh, bored out. Oh, no. The sawdust, so, how old is it? About two weeks old. Oh, right. It's very fresh. And you've got yeah. lots of it? Yeah, I do. It oh, was a no. damaged tree. Um, I don't like putting sawdust, uh, using sawdust, because it breaks down very, very quickly, and it starts mm. to use, and it uses lots of nitrogen out of the soil to break down. If you're going to use it, uh, I would be putting on, say, something like blood and bone, um, or maybe some uh, uh, finely uh, crushed uh, chicken manure pellets. But put down so something that's high in nitrogen on the soil, and then put your sawdust on top of that. That will overcome the uh, nitrogen drawdown problem. But I think uh, it would be much better adding to a compost heap and certainly yeah, yeah. ageing it. A fresh sawdust is not a good thing anyway. There could be uh, chemicals in the, in the sawdust which will come out and cause a bit of a problem. But uh, I would certainly um, be putting it, if you can, into the compost, no more than probably about 15% compost uh, to the rest of the volume of your compost heap. Thank you. You saved my tree. <laughs> Let's hope so. Thanks, Amanda, for the call. Congratulations to Sharon in Laura and Peter in Cuddly Creek, who won the ABC Gardening Australia magazines. And Steve Whelan, who we know, um, says, I wonder if you could mention the SA Autumn Garden Festival on next weekend, Sunday the 19th of March. Speakers include Costa, Sophie Thompson, Rebecca Sullivan and Kim Cyrus. 70 exhibitors, plenty of food and wine. Gates open at 10 in the Clare Showgrounds. Biggest garden festival in SA. Steve, I hope you've sent all that information to John and myself to Adelaide Weekends at abc.net.au. Then it will go into our Talkback Gardening Notices next weekend and, John, it will go into your Good Gardening into Newsletter. Good Gardening Newsletter. comes out free every Friday. So please feed the information to us and then we will let everybody know. So yeah. you send that to us, please. Adelaide Weekends at abc.net.au. And if you have got anything gardening coming up, let us know if you've got a community plant sale and we'll put it in our newsletters. Yes, and I think it's time for me to retreat into my own little garden. There's lots of things to be planted, a good time for repotting, good time to take cuttings of soft cuttings of pelargoniums and geraniums and things like that. But anyway, enjoy the long weekend and until next week, I'll say good gardening. <laughs>